She wanted to fit in. She wanted to be liked. She wanted to have friends and the friends that she wanted to have, she wanted to make sure that they liked to party. She still remembers the first time she was offered a drink. It didn't taste great, but everyone else was doing it, so she did too. In her mind, the drink in her hand gave her confidence and made her believe that she was a part of something bigger than herself. It wasn't long after that that she was introduced to drugs. She started off by smoking pot, but it quickly led to her popping pills. She was now the life of the party, and she had more friends than she had ever had before in her life. One night, this beautiful young girl at the tender age of 18 headed to another party. On this night, she had too much to drink and had taken far too many drugs. She passed out, and one of her girlfriends, who was also drunk at the time, along with a couple of other guys, picked her up, placed her in her car to drive her home. The roads that night were icy, and the drunken girlfriend lost control of the car and hit a telephone pole. The young girl who was passed out in the car went through the windshield and then came back with such a force that she broke the seat back that she was sitting in. It took emergency workers several hours to get her body out of the vehicle. She was rushed to the hospital and was diagnosed with a swollen brain. Her parents got the call at three in the morning and rushed to be by their daughter's side. The young girl had two brothers, age 10 and age 12. They waited by the phone, waiting to hear if their sister was dead or alive. For the next 30 days, this young girl laid in a coma. The youngest boy in the family begged his mom to see his sister, but the parents didn't think that that would be a good idea. But after a week of pestering his folks, they finally gave in and he was allowed to come to the hospital and see her. He walked in the room and grabbed his sister's hand. He begged her to wake up. He begged her to open her eyes. That beautiful young girl was my sister, and I was that 10-year-old little boy. And I still remember it like it was yesterday. After 30 days of her lying in a coma, she finally came to again. But she did not come back as the same person that we had known before. Uh, she couldn't talk. She couldn't walk. She couldn't feed herself. She didn't know how to use a fork. She didn't know how to use a spoon. We basically had to teach her how to go to the bathroom once again. And even to this day, my sister is disabled. And, and those friends that she wanted to impress, those friends that she cared so much about their opinion of her... Uh, not one of them came by the hospital to see how she was doing. And not a single one ever picked up the phone to check on her to see what was going on. It was a series of choices that led her to the destination that she found herself in. And so it was in the days of Noah. People's choices. They thumbed their nose at God. They did what was right in their own eyes. They went their own direction. And they ended up in a place that I'm absolutely certain that they didn't want to be. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. God looked over at his creation and he saw how wicked mankind had become. He saw them choosing lies over the truth, gossip over encouragement. 
He saw people hurting each other and wounding each other. And what does the Bible say was his reaction? Was he wrathful? Was he angry? Was he mad? No, the Bible says that his heart was absolutely broken. I remember when I was a kid, and my mom found a pack of cigarettes in my sister's purse. Well, she was very upset and very concerned about this. She already believed that my sister was already heading down the wrong trajectory of her life. And so she was doing what any parent would do. She was searching the room, searching the purse, found the pack of cigarettes. She went to my sister and she said, do you know whose cigarettes these are? And of course, my sister lied and said, I'm holding these cigarettes for a friend. Isn't that the answer that they always give? Well, my mom was relentless. And about three, four, five o'clock in the morning, she had worn my sister down. And finally, she admitted that the cigarettes were hers. It was just a few weeks after that, that we came home from church. And she was gone. She'd run away. This is before the days of the internet. This is before the days, you know, where you had a cell phone with you wherever you went. We didn't know where she was. We didn't know who she was with. We just had radio silence from that point forward. And I remember that night sitting at the dinner table and watching the reaction of my mom and my dad. And I was shocked that the reaction wasn't anger. I mean, my dad had gotten mad at me over things that were a lot smaller than running away from home. His anger was supreme. But he didn't exhibit anger on this particular day. He was weeping. I never saw my dad cry. He was weeping at the table. Both of them moving the food around with their fork. My mom weeping at the table. And why were they weeping? Because they loved her so much. And they knew that if she continued to go the direction that she was going, that she was going to destroy her life. So God looks at his creation. Can you imagine every single day seeing them choose the wrong thing? Every thought, every inclination of man's heart was on evil all the time. God wasn't mad. God wasn't wrathful. His heart broke. That shows how much he loves us. When your heart breaks over the sin, it shows that you love the sinner. Parents, if you have a teenager right now and your teenager is going the wrong direction, they're doing the wrong thing, you might be frustrated with them from time to time. But what's really happening inside of you is that your heart is absolutely breaking because you know if they continue to go the direction that they've been going, they're going to end up in a place that they never wanted to be. And so God saw his creation And he said, something has to be done about this. One of the things that's interesting is wherever you go to church, you know, wherever that is, whenever that is, you always talk about the love of God, right? Love of God. Oh, God loves me. We sing about the love of God. We raise our hands to the love of God. God forgives me. We love talking about that. But we don't talk a whole lot about the holiness of God. We don't talk a whole lot about the consequences that come as a result of our rebellion against God. But when the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, God isn't bluffing when he says that. That There was a a high school school teacher, and, and he was given the assignment to take on the hardest, most difficult class that they had in the entire school. And so he was up for the challenge, but two weeks before the class was to begin, he had tweaked his back. He had messed his back up. So he had to get a plaster cast over his torso. 
Well, he put his suit and tie on, you know, so nobody would see that he had the plaster cast. And the first day of going into that classroom where those kids had run off teacher after teacher after teacher, he walked in very boldly, very confidently. Well, when he walked in, none of the kids even paid any attention to anything that he had to say. They ignored him. So he got up from behind the desk and he abruptly brought up the window. And then he went back and he sat down. He made such a ruckus that the kids stopped for a second, looked over to see what he was doing. And he sat there behind the desk and he stared at them. And they stared back at him. Well, the breeze came through the window. And when the breeze came through the window, it took his tie and the tie began to flutter in front of his face. So without missing a beat, he grabbed his tie and threw it to his chest, took a stapler and pounded it again and again and again and again. Needless to say, he didn't have any problem with that class from that point forward. <laughs> he got his bluff in, didn't he? But God doesn't bluff, does he? God was grieved. And so he said, I'm going to wipe out mankind from the face of the earth. Now, we read a story like that. We say, man, that's, that's, that's harsh right there. I mean, he killed everybody. I mean, he even killed innocent children, didn't he? Yes, he did. Let me let you on a little insight about God. God always has an eternal perspective. You see, we, we see things that are here today and gone tomorrow, but God always is looking at things in terms of eternity. So by God wiping the entire face of the earth from mankind at this time, all of the kids as well, he just spared those children. You understand that, right? Because they would have grown up in abusive situations. They would have probably followed in their parents' footsteps of rebellion and thumbing their nose against God. And they would have ended up in a place forever called hell. But because they died in their innocence, God took them to be with him in heaven. So here's what the Bible says. So the Lord said, I'll wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In a day and age when everybody was doing whatever they wanted to do, there was one, and only one, who lived his life for an audience of one, who lived his life wholeheartedly for God. God said, Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. Now you go and make for me an ark. So Noah did. And it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. And the ark was huge. It was enormous. Norman Geisler writes this about the ark says, engineers, computer programmers, and wildlife experts have all taken a look at the biblical description and concluded that the ark was sufficient for the task. One former naval designer said, Noah's ark was extremely stable, more stable, in fact, than modern ships. That's because many ocean liners follow the same basic proposed portions of six to one, but their stability is lessened by the need to slice through the water with as little drag as possible. Noah wasn't necessarily intent on going anywhere. He wasn't going on a cruise. He was just trying to survive. Modern stability tests have shown that such a vessel could take up to 200-foot waves and could tip as much as 90 degrees. And as Noah built the ark, guess what happened? People came around. And they laughed at him, and they made fun of him, and you would have too. Because he's 500 miles away from any body of water. They tried to discourage him, don't you think? 
That's what the Bible says in the New Testament, that they came to him and they tried to discourage him. They tried to criticize him for 120 years. Can you imagine? For 120 years, people put him down. People laughed at him. People made fun of him. I bet they made signs that said, see Noah's Ark 10 miles from here, right? Like the old Stucky signs, old timers around here. Remember Stucky's, right? Stucky's was a good time, I tell you that right now. I, I, I don't know about you, but criticism hurts, doesn't it? It's not very fun when somebody criticizes you. And it just seems like there's nothing you can do that will please everybody else, is there? There, there was an elderly gentleman, and he was coming in with his son in, into a village, and he had a, pulling on a rope a, a donkey behind him. And the people of the village laughed. They said, why, why in the world are you pulling a donkey? One of you should be riding the donkey. So the old guy thought, well, that's a pretty good idea. So he got on the donkey. Well, they headed into the next village, and the people of the next village began to ridicule him as well. They said, I cannot believe that you're riding the donkey. You don't have your son riding the donkey with you. He said, well, that's a good point. I guess my son could ride with me. So he grabbed his son, put his son up on the donkey as well. Well, they headed on down the road to the next village. Next village said, I just can't believe it. They got angry and they got mad. I can't believe it. Both of you on that donkey. That's just too much of a load, I tell you what. Last I heard, that guy was carrying the donkey into the next village. You know, Jesus couldn't please everybody. He healed on the wrong day. He hung out with the wrong people. He was a friend of sinners. Some of you are living your life in such a manner, in such a way that you're trying to please everybody. And can I tell you something? You're never going to be able to pull that one off. Not ever. Not ever. So what in the world do we do with criticism? Well, I think we need to consider the source, don't you? What is the source of the criticism that's coming your way? If the criticism is coming from a trusted friend, a, a godly person who really has their best interest at heart for you, then I think you should listen to them and see if there's validity in what they have to say, and then I think you need to make adjustments as a result. This is what the Bible says. It says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. That's true, isn't it? I love that verse. It's one of my favorite verses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. There are times when your wife or your husband or someone that you're close to will say, I don't know if you see this. You've got a fatal flaw here. You're messing up over here. You need to change the direction with this. And you need to listen to that. They're coming to you and they're wounding you to help you. But what's an enemy do? An enemy is what my sister was surrounded with. A bunch of people said, let's go out and party. Let's go, get, let's go rage it up. Let's go crazy with drugs. Let's just go well, this direction. And they continued to encourage her to do that, which was going to lead her to a place that she never should have gone. An enemy multiplies kisses. Says, oh, don't worry about that. It's not that big of a deal. You keep going that direction. Everything will be fine. Friends, listen to me. There, there are some people that are just mean. There are some people that are just going to blast you just because they want to blast you. And they're going to try to take away your dream. They're going to try to take away your hopes. They're going to try to discourage you with everything they can say and everything they can do. I, I think about David. Don't you think about David? I mean, he's just a young shepherd kid. And, and, and all of a sudden, uh, 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 Samuel comes in to see who he could anoint as a brand new king. And Jesse lines up all of his sons. And, and Jesse, the father of all the boys, didn't believe that David had any king potential. So he didn't even call his son out from the fields. He had him look at his other sons first. And Samuel said, is this all the sons you've got? And the dad said, well, there is one red-headed kid out here in the field that he might you know, make the bill. 
Then when he goes to check on the battlefield with Goliath, didn't everybody criticize him there too? He said, what will be done to shut this loudmouth Philistine up? Well, what are we giving to the one who takes that giant down? And his brother said, hey, cool, man, calm down. Like, you're the guy to do it. And then when there was a rumor around camp that, that someone was talking about taking on Goliath because everybody else was a chicken, Saul calls him in, looks at him and says, oh, you're just a kid. You're just a boy. You can't do it. Criticism, 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 criticism. David looked at Saul and said, the Lord was with me when I took care of my sheep. When the lion and tiger and bear, oh my, came and attacked my sheep, the Lord gave me power to overcome the lion and the tiger and the bear. You see, David believed that the battle belongs to the Lord. And that dream inside of you, of what you can be, of what you need to be, of the difference you can make with your one shot at life, that belongs to the Lord God Almighty. Don't you dare let someone take your dream away. Don't you dare let someone steal away the joy in your life. The battle belongs to the Lord. What did Noah do in the face of all this criticism? Let me tell you what he did. He kept showing up. He kept showing up for 120 years. I think he's an incredible person in the Bible. I mean, it takes a lot to go from a two-by-four to a 450-foot-long arc. You understand what I'm saying? But 120 years, he did what he was assigned to do. He finished the task that God had for him to finish. And finally, it was done. The ark was completed. Now, can you imagine how freaked out the people must have been when the animals started coming two-by-two? Now, that's a miracle right there. What's God doing? Well, they wouldn't listen to Noah for 120 years when he told them to repent. Now he's bringing animals in two by two. Another miraculous thing has taken place. You would think the people would say, what in the world is going on? He's giving the people one last chance. But they don't take it. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I found you righteous in this generation. Seven days from now, I'll send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I'll wipe from the face of the earth every living creature that I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And after seven days, oh, friends, didn't it rain children? Remember that canopy we talked about last week? Well, it surrounded the circumference of the earth, and that's how the ultraviolet rays didn't hit us, and so we could live longer on the face of the earth. That canopy's ripped in two. And water, rain begins to pour down. And the water that misted the grass from below, it starts to come up as well. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, it rained and it rained and it rained. How do we know it's true? Ken Ham, who is the founder of Answers in Genesis, asked the question. Here's what he asked. If there was a worldwide flood, what would you expect to find? Then he answers his own question. You should be able to find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And guess what? That's exactly what we find. See, something, just because something dies and we put it in the ground doesn't mean it becomes a fossil. Did you know that? I, did, I didn't know that. Something catastrophic has to happen. It has to be suddenly encased in mud for that animal to become a fossil. 
Something catastrophic, something sudden has to happen. So what's the fossil record show us? Shows us huge dinosaurs that are encased in mud. Something catastrophic happened in that moment in time. It shows us fish that were giving birth, and there's fossils of the fish and the babies. Something catastrophic happened during that time. Did you know that in Siberia, we have discovered frozen mammoths with plants still in their bellies that only warmer climates have those kinds of plants? How in the world did that happen? And let me give you one more. You can go to the top of any mountain. You can go to the top of the tallest mountain on the face of the earth. And you know what you'll find on the top of the tallest mountain on the face of the earth? You'll find seashells. So we got to stop and ask ourselves a question. How did the seashells end up on the top of the mountain? There was a flood. So I don't know. I don't know. Well, Moses believed it happened. Job believed it happened. Isaiah believed that it happened. Simon Peter believed that it happened. Oh, and there's one more that believed that it happened. His name was Jesus. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of God. And I believe that we're in the end times. I mean, how much worse can it get than it already is? Two things I want you to understand. Write these down. Number one, God takes sin very seriously, and we would be wise to do the same thing. God takes sin very seriously, and we would be wise to do the same thing. In the San Francisco Bay Area, there is a prison. You've probably visited it. Maybe you've taken a tour of it. It's on a small little piece of land in the middle of the water. They call it Alcatraz. It was the place where the most notorious criminals would end up doing their time for the crimes that they had committed. People like Al Capone, Robert Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz, all did time here in this place. If you ever take a tour, make sure you stop by cell number 117. This is where Machine Gun Kelly spent his time in Alcatraz. And while he spent his time in that prison cell, he wrote this with a rock on the wall. He wrote, nothing can be worth this. That's it. When you understand the consequences, when you stop rationalizing and justifying and acting like it's not that big of a deal, when you realize what you've done to yourself, what you've done to others, what you've done to the heart of God, you will come to the same conclusion that Machine Gun Kelly came to. Nothing, nothing can be worth this. No matter what I thought, no matter what I felt, I now realize nothing can be worth this. Jesus told the story about a rich man and a beggar who died on the same day. This is Luke chapter 16. Jesus said there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. 
But Abraham replied, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. The rich man never took sin seriously. And he never took the holiness of God seriously. And when he died, he went to hell. And he was in torment. Notice he doesn't say, hey, I can't wait for my brothers to get here. The beer's flowing. The alcohol's thick. The women are ready. This is the best place ever. He said, you've got to send somebody you got to send somebody to warn them so that they don't come to this awful place. What did Abraham say? He said, even if somebody raises from the dead, they still won't listen. And somebody did rise again from the dead, didn't they? And yet in the world we live in today, people still don't listen. Let me tell you something, friend. If you don't take sin seriously, if you're messing with something, thinking about doing something, thinking about going a direction that you shouldn't go, I'm going to tell you right now, if you never take Jesus seriously in your life, you never repent of your sin, you push him away, and you push him away, and you push him away, there will be a day you'll stand before him the second that you breathe your last breath on this earth, and he will look at you and say, depart from me, you evil and wicked person. I don't know you. And you won't be able to blame God for it because it's what you chose. You chose it for yourself. God did everything so you could have a relationship with you. He sends his son to die on the cross for you. He rises again from the dead. He wants to forgive you for every foolish thing that you've ever done. But you thwarted him. You said, I don't want you. I don't need you in my life. I'll go my own direction. I'll do my own thing. I want nothing to do with you, God. And then when you die, God will say, well, you wanted nothing to do with me on this earth. So therefore, you'll have nothing to do with me for all eternity. Depart from me, you evil and wicked person. And when you're in hell, you know what you'll be thinking to yourself over and over and over and over and over again? Nothing's worth this. Nothing's worth this. I should have honored God. I should have repented of my sin. I should have taken seriously the holiness of God. Friends, listen to me. God takes sin seriously. You'd be wise to do the same thing. Let me give you the second thing I want you to give. Is that God can use you to make a difference in this world. Now some of you don't believe it. But he really wants to use your life to make a difference in the life of somebody else. That's what he did here with Noah, didn't he? And I, I just think, I, you, know, you think about the number of people who, who watch online and, and, and watch on TV and the number of people who come every single week. And, and I just thought if we could just dream a dream of how God could really use us, how we could really make a difference, how we could really impact the world that we live in, you know? And, and I think about the difference that you could make at your home. You know, what difference could you make at your house? What difference could you make at your job? What difference could you make in about a month when school starts back up again? What difference? How could you leverage your time, your talent, your treasure for the things of God, for the kingdom of God? What kind of difference could you make? Now, now here's the problem. Whenever you get a question like that, you know, you always think grandiose, don't you? We always think big, awesome, amazing things. I don't think that's the way it works. I think it's the small things that you do every single day that make the difference. 
I think some of us are sitting around trying to figure out some big, grandiose, big dream of how we're going to make a big splash and a big difference, and you're missing out on the small opportunities of day-to-day living. How can you make a difference in your home? How about say a kind word to your wife? And all the women said, yes. (laughs) How can you make a difference with your kids? They get beat down every single day. Why don't you build them up? How could you make a difference in your neighborhood? When you see a need, could could you meet the need? How could you make a difference at the job? Is there someone who's struggling, someone who's lonely, someone who's confused, someone who could use a friend? Maybe you could be the one to say, let's go for lunch together. Let's get a conversation going. Maybe there's someone in your sphere of influence that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, and you're the only Jesus they're ever going to see. What if you shared the difference that Christ has made in your life? And you did it with gentleness and with respect. And they were interested because they had seen Jesus living through you. You can make an eternal difference in the life of somebody else. Think think about uh, working in the kids' ministry or the student ministry. The difference that you can make in those areas of ministry as you, as you mentor those kids and you help those kids and, and, and you lead them into, into a deeper relationship with Jesus, one child at a time. What a difference that we could make. Friends, one life can make a difference. Noah's life made a difference. And I just think about who could be, who was stuck in poverty because we're not stepping up? And who doesn't know the message of Jesus because we're not speaking of? Where is the kingdom of God stalling out today? Because faithful men and women aren't stepping up to make the difference in that situation. We see needs. And then we ignore those needs. We don't become the hands and the feet of Jesus. So Noah floats around on the ark for another year. Did you know he was on the boat for that long? It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of about a year, year and a half, the water began to recede. Noah began to send birds out to find out if there was any dry ground. Eventually, he came back with a fig leaf kind of thing. And he was set. He was ready to go. Finally, the ark landed on solid ground. And what's the first thing that Noah did? Noah was such a good guy. He opens up the ark. He gets the animals out of there because I'm sure it smelled really bad inside that thing. He got out there, and the first thing he did was he built an altar to the Lord. He worshiped the Lord and thanked God for saving his life and allowing him to make a difference for all humanity. The end. Isn't that a great story? That's such a good story. Some of you are like, that's not the end. Yeah, that's it. We're just going to stop right there. That's. Say, what do you mean, Todd? Some of you don't know. (laughs) Well, no, I've been on that ark for a long time. He came out, and he built an altar, and he began to worship the Lord, and that's all good, isn't it? And after a little while, he planted himself a vineyard, and he grew him some grapes, and then he fermented the grapes, and then he got drunk as a skunk and laid out naked. That's what he did. Um, and his sons had to come and cover him. It was quite a nuisance. It was quite a mess. It wasn't good, not good at all. I hate that ending. You know that? Don't you hate that in you? are like, Noah, you're the only righteous man on the face of the earth. You, you build an ark for 120 years that God brings the animals two by two. You, you, survive, you survive all those waves. You survive feeding them and cleaning up after them and taking care of them. And then you come out and you do so good, man. The first thing you do is you praise God. You put an altar out there and you say, hallelujah, right? Way to go. Way to go. And then you got drunk. Well, it kind of makes sense if you think about everything you've been through, right? First time I heard that long, long time ago, he went and got drunk, got naked. I thought, oh, crud. Hated the ending. 
I don't hate it so much anymore. In fact, I kind of like it. Because we've been studying Hebrews 11, God's hall of faith. Last week was Enoch and this week is Noah. I like that Noah made a fool of himself. I like that he got drunk and somewhat like he got naked. Because it gives me hope. You see, even though Noah blew it, God still put him in the hall of faith. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? That we have a God who doesn't see who we are but what we can be. That we have a God who forgives. A God who walks with failures if they confess their sin. He walks with failures as if they've never failed. God isn't looking for perfect people. He's just looking for people who want to be used, who want to have his eyes, who see a need, who meet a need, who want to leave this world in just a little bit better shape than the way they found it. May we be faithful like Noah. This is not permission to get drunk and naked. (laughs) But when the Lord looks throughout the entire earth for someone to strengthen, May his eyes fall on the likes of you and me and say, there's someone who loves me, who wants to be used by me, who wants to make a difference with the one shot at life that they've been given. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want this. We want this really, really badly. We want to be righteous. We want to shine in a dark world. God, give us eyes to see the needs that are all around us. Give us a heart of compassion. God, help us to go to places nobody else will go, to help people that nobody else wants to help, to see things that nobody else wants to see. God, use our time, our talent, and our treasure for your kingdom and for your glory. Help us to be faithful, Lord, to the dream that you've placed inside of us. God, please don't allow us to listen to the critics. They're going to make us believe that we are less than, that we can't pull it off, that we can't do it. Your Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and we can do all things through you who gives us strength. God, may we live like it. May we pick up another board and hammer away on the task that you've given us to hammer away at. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you as you have been faithful to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.